Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Chris Sims. And to open with a quick editorial note, this episode was recorded almost two years ago in early 2017. And a lot has changed for the Go Dig a Hole podcast in the time since. Some of the views shared on this episode either aren't current or don't reflect the positions of Go Dig a Hole anymore. So this episode has been edited both for sound and to trim some of the less relevant material. Uh, we're putting this archive podcast episode back out as an opportunity to share the good parts and to critically evaluate some of the not so good parts. So enjoy this blast from the past and stay tuned for more current episodes coming soon. Also, huge shout out to all of the Patreon supporters. Uh, we've reached our first support goal. Uh, it helps us go a long way to bringing public archaeology, outreach, education, and advocacy projects um, to uh, the Portland area and all over the country. And uh, I couldn't be couldn't be more appreciative of everyone's help. So huge thank you. Um, you can also support the Go Dig a Hole podcast without giving any money, uh, just by sharing the podcast and uh, sharing some of the projects that uh, myself and, and my co-host Kirsten Lopez are up to. So uh, again, thank you and uh, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Christopher Sims. Uh, today, I've got a special guest with us. Um, I don't often get feedback on the podcast, but I'm always happy when I do. And uh, Colin Omolanowski uh, sent me an email uh, probably about a week ago with some really great questions and suggestions for some topics to cover. And I've been rolling through some kind of um, topic-specific interviews with some people and I have a lot of like general topics that I always want to cover but they kept falling by the wayside uh, for some more focused like topic focused interviews so uh, we've got Colin on today Colin how's it going hey it's going well Chris nice and we've also got Chris Webster from all the other podcasts <laughs> hey, how's it going <laughs> and uh, we also have Emily Long on she's the host of trial tales and one of the lead hosts on the women in archaeology podcast so check both of those out Emily thanks for joining the show how's it going it's going great I'm happy to be here awesome well uh Let's let's get a brief intro on Colin. Uh, Colin, you're you said in your email you're a, a recent grad from. Uh, God, I'm gonna butcher it again. <laughs> Is it uh, College of Worcester? <gasps> That's where I went. No way. No way. <laughs> no, I, it's totally where I got my undergrad. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> Were you taught under the illustrious Cardulius? No, I, okay, so I came a little late to the archaeology game. Um, I double majored in history and classical studies. Um, my major was archaeology, history, and a minor in classical studies. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we'll have to talk later about oh Esther. I just love it. Um, so, as I said, I came late to the archaeology game, and I was a little stuck during my going between my junior year because I thought, oh, I was going to study abroad in Rome for the spring semester. I just wasn't planning on it, on being in Worcester. And then the application fell through. It's like, great, what do I do? And so I took intro to archaeology uh, with uh, Dr. Navarro Farr, 
um, who is a my archaeologist, and I loved the class. And then the summer between my junior and senior year, I went to an, a field school called Helmiris, which is a Roman frontier fort. Loved the experience. And then I ended up writing my senior independent study on, on the fort, which investigated how these two uh, ancient Christian martyrs, um, well, the death of them, impacted the religious and military functions of the fort. Ooh, cool. That sounds yeah. really fascinating. Nice. Yeah, it was this like complete 180 degree, well, not maybe like a 90 degree shift. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like a turn, but it was a big turnaround. And ever since that intro class, I was hooked. That's wonderful. It's it's great when you can get those sudden inspiration, the way you take one class and you're like, oh, this is what I've been missing all my life. I, I totally feel that. And everything just made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. That's wonderful. Well, Colin, <laughs> did you feel like, uh, you know, going into it, did you feel like you needed kind of a sink or swim moment where it was like, uh, you know, going into field work and going into your uh, senior research? Did you have any like hesitation leading up to that where you were like, okay, this is the point where I either continue on this path or I go a different 90 degree? Yeah, there was this terrifying moment. Um, <laughs> I was with, I was talking with one of my professors in her office and she said, now it's really 50-50 in how people either love archaeology and digging in the field or they absolutely hate it. Um, <laughs> and we actually had two girls who after three weeks, just left. They just decided they had enough of it. Didn't tell the directors or anything. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. That's that's rough. Although I've seen that in um, your real world CRM situations, people just saying, nope, this is not what I'm wanted. And they leave after a couple of days. I saw a guy throw up his entire backpack full of stuff into the dumpster on site and just walked off. He's like, never doing this again. He's like, I don't want any chance of coming back, so I'm losing all my stuff. He just chucked it in the trash and walked away. Oh my gosh. And then another archaeologist dug it out and was like, new backpack. I wouldn't doubt it. I think I think we descended on it like, like ripped it apart and took it away. And Colin, did you feel that when you were in your field school, that desire, you're like, yes, I do like getting my hands dirty, or were you more like, maybe I'm more? of a lab person oh no it was definitely i love getting dirty in the dirt and <laughs> even when we were um just we, when we set up the unit and we found like the crappiest piece of pottery it was like oh my god no one's touched this in like 1700 years it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure awesome. you've all had that moment Oh, definitely. Yeah, those moments like uh, I had a very similar moment last summer where I was uh, we had finished excavating a Maya ball court and we found the plaster floor in the middle of the court. And as we cleaned it all off, you know, we had spent like two weeks clearing off this this plaster floor. And then when we finally got to stand on it, we were like, we're the first people to stand on this in 1500 years. That's. Mm really cool that's, that's incredible awesome. but yeah so that's really awesome and you had mentioned uh while we were chatting leading up to this podcast colin uh you're you're looking into going back for more school what are your plans with that so i'm currently applying to classics post back programs at a couple universities on the east coast um and i'm hoping by being accepted into one of these programs that would allow me to pursue graduate school for 
classical archaeology. Nice. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. And are, are you excited to get out of Ohio then? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean Cleveland will always have a special place in my heart. Definitely. But through conversations with people, um, they, they're saying, oh, well, is there any archaeology that you would want to do here? I said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's the all over. Archaeology is a little more difficult in, in Ohio, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, especially for classical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, to I guess to get into the, the meat of uh, Colin's email, Colin, you had some great suggestions for stuff to cover. And uh, I'm just going to read straight out of the email here. You said uh, it'd be cool for us to cover everything from the purpose of using your trowel to a total station, LIDAR, and how computer technology is becoming more involved in the field. It'd be great for prospective archaeologists to understand what's used in the field and the lab. That's a wonderful suggestion. And uh, we have, um, you know, we have various other like episodes and shows devoted to that. Like Archaeotech does does a lot of technology, but that's like it kind of at times a little esoteric and, you know, very specific. And it's not sometimes not always the best entry point. And um, Emily had mentioned in uh, while we were chatting leading up to the episode that Emily, you just taught a, a class on tools for survey. So I think that'd be That's right. a good starting point. Let's let's go with that. Uh, so I teach an intro class at one of the local universities on archaeology. And the that lecture was specifically on survey. How do we survey? What do we do? Um, and I talked about everything from, I mean, just your beginning research design to boots on the ground to LIDAR um, and ground penetrating uh, technologies, um, kind of the whole gamut. And what was great is about halfway through, because I mentioned shovel tests at one point, I had a student raise their hand and say, well, do you use a lot of this like high technology? Like what other tools do you use? And I was like, honestly, the probably the most important tools, the two tools we use the most are Probably three, actually. It's a shovel, a trowel, and a screen. <laughs> those are those three main things. And uh, because for a shovel test, well, you obviously need a shovel. You need a screen to screen the dirt and need a trowel to be able to scrape the sides. And those are something you cannot replace with anything else. You may have massive different types of technology. You may have a, a special um, iPad or... <laughs> Uh, you can have a total station uh, and to map in all of your shovel tests. But at the end of the day, you need that trowel, you need that shovel and you need your screen. Yeah. It's funny how we always come back to the low tech stuff and, you know, in archeology, span it's similar to like forensic uh, examiners seeing the, the show bones and mm -hmm. being asked, Oh, you work in a lab like that? Nah, not really. Mm-hmm. But you know, you holograms. Know, <laughs> yeah, we've got holographic screens in front of us and stuff. Now it's <laughs> seldom like that. But uh, when I started off, you know, in field school, I was just using a trowel and like a, a pick hammer or a rock hammer. And the first time I worked in CRM, you know, I, I was handed a, a long handled spade and a screen. And the crew chief that was training me on my my first day on the job called it a science shovel. And I thought that was just like a funny, like half joking thing. But I think that there's also, you know, the other half that's not joking is, you know, there's a reason why we use every tool for every job and there's a right tool for every job. And, you know, we'll explore this deeper throughout the, the podcast. But, you know, the, the fundamentals of doing field work are incredibly low tech 
Um, and it's been that way for about as long as the field has existed as, as a topic of study. And Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of neat that, you know, some, some things don't change, but then, you know, our technology and our methods and our theoretical approaches do change. And so those theoretical approaches though, like determine what we, uh, you know, why we're using all these low tech tools. So we'll come back to that one, but I think it's really funny that when you go on the AIA website and there's always these warnings that, oh, well, archeology span is really hard and you have to do serious manual labor. And that surprises a lot of people when in conversations and telling them about it, it's like, yeah, I I'm sweating and I'm also getting a workout simultaneously (laughs) from dig from digging in the sun all day. Oh, that's so true. And it cracks me up because I know this is a problem for a lot of my friends that are fellow archaeologists that there's a part of the year where you are like the buffest you are ever going to be because you're <laughs> lifting buckets of dirt and you're mm-hmm. you're shoveling or you're um, surveying 16 miles a day and you get to a point where you're like, yeah, this is nothing. It's like a, a walk in the park. And then um, <laughs> this is more of my lady friends, but you know, we can have <laughs> tight pants and it's just kind of, you're just like, oh, I can't fit my pants on because my legs are so buff and then or shirts are just like my arms are busting out of my shirt and you know it's just like muscles and but it's only for like three months and then you stop (laughs) but yeah you're totally right there is a surprising amount of physicality and the need to be able to handle uh rudimentary tools it's great Mm -hmm. because i mean a lot of people may have not done a lot of gardening growing up. They may not know how to handle a shovel correctly or how to lift with their legs as opposed to their back and, you know, different things that you kind of learn on the job on how to best use your, your muscle, how to best use your body type for the type of physicality that is necessary for survey, excavation, more academic projects. It, it is surprising. Yeah. And it, it hasn't aired yet by the time we're recording this, but, uh, the, the episode that precedes this, uh, episode, uh, 20 or 21, I, I don't know. One of the previous episodes of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, uh, I have uh, my personal trainer, also, who's also my brother, who's also <laughs> my roommate, uh, <laughs> talk about uh, fitness for the field. And he has a really interesting perspective on fitness for archaeologists. Um, but it, it echoes his philosophy on fitness for everyone is, is that one, fitness is a social construct, like the idea of fitness and, and what it means for how you look and how you perform it as a social construct. But in the end for everyone, but especially for archeologists, fitness means avoiding injury and training yourself to avoid injury. And so I think that that's really important no matter what stage of career you're at and no matter what stage of physical fitness you are, or what stage of ability you're at, um, whether you're, you're able or disabled, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be some element of avoiding injury, whether you're sitting at a desk for eight hours, because, you know, I think any of us can attest that, uh, that will, you know, grind away at your back and, and oh result in a lot of shoulder and neck pain, mm-hmm. uh, just as much as, you know, a long day in the field will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the key things was, uh, for being in the field is that you, if someone has some sort of like medical condition or physical limitation, like that needs to be known to the directors or to whoever you're with. So for example, I was a trench supervisor that last year and one of the girls had a, 
like a heart murmur. Oh, and, and so like she told me in the beginning that I can, sometimes I'll have to take a break and like, that's totally good. Um, because there's definitely people who don't work as hard or just being lazy, but you know, she hauled ass and it was great to have her in the trench, but at times, like when it was like 90 degrees out, um, and she's just like shoveling away, she's like, I want to keep working, but I just can't, um, you know, communication like that's essential for making someone not die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I run into that too, as, um, as a supervisor of a field school in Belize every summer, you know, I, I work with people of you know, varying levels of fitness and ability and experience, but dehydration is, and heat injury oh. is a constant threat. And so, you know, Colin, you're absolutely right about that communication being super important. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, you know, it can be a little embarrassing to, you know, have to admit that you're, you're struggling with something or that you have a limitation. But I think that that communication is super important because it's the difference between an unavoidable injury and, you know, having a rewarding experience in archaeology. That's so true. And mm -hmm. I think that is probably one of the greatest weaknesses in our field is that there is a major lack of communication. There is that sense of like, no, I can keep going. No, I, I'm strong enough to do this. I, I think communication is a major problem in our field because people don't want to say they're, they're having an issue. And I've been on many projects where somebody, they look like they're, they're like at the beginnings of heat exhaustion and you're like, you need to take a break. You need to do this. But I wasn't the one in charge. There's somebody else who said something. They weren't the ones in charge. So the person kept going, kept going. And then they passed out. Yeah. Huh. And it's just stuff like that. And if, or if you have a, an injury and you keep walking it there, I've known many people where they maybe sprained an ankle or something, but they kept going because they didn't want to stop the project. Well, sometimes it's better to stop the project and take the person back to the hotel, take them to the hospital or whatever, rather than have a prolonged injury or something more, situ uh, a more dangerous situation. Because if I have somebody who is 6'3", and you know, 180 pounds, I can't carry them out of the field. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think that's it. Yes, you're 100% right, Colin. And people have to talk to each other. People need to tell their supervisors. But there is that kind of machismo is it machismo what's yeah. the right term um, yeah definitely yeah in the field where people are like no i can do this and <laughs> it can be problematic yeah and that's not just limited to field schools and, and academic settings and let's take a different approach and uh, we've talked about some low-tech stuff and some elements of, of field work uh, let's talk about some of the high-tech stuff so you know emily you had alluded to how you know oftentimes we don't uh, get much working knowledge of these things. Like when I was going through school, you know, both in undergrad and in grad school, I learned about all sorts of techniques in, uh, like, uh, chemical sampling and, and all sorts of other stuff, uh, in, in lab settings and in the field and stuff like that. And I've honestly, like, <laughs> I understand them on a conceptual level, but I've, I've really only done a, a couple, like, high-tech things like I've never seen an XRF in person I have done uh, I've collected OSL samples I've, I've collected tons of OSL samples but I've never actually seen the machine that does it mm -hmm. uh, you know I've done GPR um, you know I'd say like that's about as high-tech as as I've experienced but you know let's let's get some of your experiences with um, you know the, the high-tech stuff that we use and 
kind of why we use them. All right. Um, I'm and I'm a little bit in the same boat as you, Chris. That I've I've learned. I've, I've gotten to use like a, a magnetometer, and I've I've used ArcGIS. Um, but I'm kind of the same boat where I mostly take the samples. I don't get to actually see the samples. <laughs> being calibrated and whatnot. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you where it's, I know the the background and how they work. Uh, but there is an amazing array of technological advancements over the last 20 years that have made our field so much more interesting. And even from the get-go, something like Google Earth has made massive, massive change. Um, there was an archaeologist who recently won the TED Prize. I believe her name is Dr. Parekh. Oh, Sarah Parkak. Parkak, yeah. that's how you say it. Thank you. Yeah. And just using satellite imagery, something you could do with Google Earth, they're able to track um, destruction of archaeological uh, sites by ISIS or looting. And using that in a way that is so incredibly important well we can even just use that before going on a survey and seeing is there anything above that we can see uh, an old ranch um the outlines of a pueblo i i think it's amazing something so simple as google earth has made such a massive uh, difference um totally. is a beautiful technology and i have never personally used it because it's too expensive <laughs> Oh, and so is the data. The sometimes oh. the data that's gathered by a lidar uh, device is, you know, that's expensive too. Just because, mm -hmm. like you had said, the the device itself and flying the device over an area uh, is very expensive. So, you know, even access to the data itself is limited. But uh, the results of the data are incredible. Like you can that's see gorgeous. through forest canopies and. Uh, Chris, you and I had spoken to uh, Jack Barry on the Archaeotech podcast right. about some of the work that he's done in the Maya region and being able to identify, um, you know, previously unidentified Maya sites and different features. There's, you know, mm -hmm. roadways and terraces uh, in the uplands and in the jungles that, you know, are otherwise undetectable by the naked eye, even by pedestrian survey. It, you know, people can be walking and standing right on top of these things and really have, you know, a poor understanding of what they're on. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's LIDAR is an incredible thing to uh, be working with. And uh, Sarah Parkak, you had mentioned, Emily, she just mm -hmm. launched the Global Explorer program yeah. and 8-Bit Test Pit uh, just had a pretty cool show on that um, that explored a, an interesting topic that I haven't I hadn't considered previously to listening to that is the ethics of gamifying uh you know that kind of research and, and all that so that's definitely worth a listen but i think that overall like that's you're totally right it's revolutionizing the the field and the kind of access to information about mm -hmm. uh, archaeological sites mm -hmm. whatever happened to that like there was that story i think it was last year that kid who was on google earth and found some like Maya, some like he was using the yeah Google Earth and found some disturbance within the jungle. And lo and behold, sign, uh, people went out there and there was something there. And now they're investigating it. I can't remember. It didn't, it didn't what quite the, go down that way. Yeah, I can't remember <laughs> what the outcomes of it were. I, if I remember right, there was that was. Uh, uh, those were the initial reports that got shared on the media. And I think like mainstream yeah. media was, they had kind of jumped the gun a little bit without, without looking back and, and doing mm -hmm. some, 
some fact checking on stuff. So if I understand correctly, you know, you guys correct me because my, my memory of the details are a little hazy on this, but, uh, what the kid had done right was, and it, I, I'm, I'm calling this person a kid. Cause I, if I remember right, they were like either 12 like, or under, um, yeah. in yeah. age, but they had this idea for a science project in school and they, uh, you know, they used the hypothetical deductive method. They said, you know, let's, let's use a scientific method and let's test and see if it works. And so, uh, he used, uh, satellite imagery to look at vegetation and saw changes in vegetation and said, you know, based on the location of this, this disturbance in vegetation, there should be a Maya temple here. And, uh, if I remember right, it wasn't a Maya temple, but it was a fallow milpa or a cornfield. And, yeah. But that fallow milpa did have uh, archaeological material, but it just wasn't monumental architecture like like the kid had hypothesized. It was um, like house mounds and stuff, but those were previously documented. But I think that there's a lot of merit to that in that the, the, we have a, a young student following hypothetical deductive methods in archaeology. And so I think that that needed to be encouraged. But what I saw uh, on social media and then like on like opinion posts and op-eds and whatnot, uh, they just trashed the kid, just like laid into him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciated his uh, his thoughtfulness and, and his scientific um, inquisitiveness and in try to figure this out. But there's a little more to it than that, because he he actually was lining up um, constellations and oh, said right. oh there's a there's a maya city here there's one here and there's one here therefore there should be one here because it matches this constellation and that's how he found basically a fallow cornfield and uh and minus when they saw it you know the, the media ran with it because the government of canada because i think he was in uh montreal or i don't know quebec or something i don't know where he was toronto maybe i don't know um but they gave him some sort of recognition some sort of you know, uh, some kudos publicly. And that's when the media really ran with it. And Mayanists were like, um, no, there's nothing there. We don't need to send out a team, you know, because we, you know, we, we know there's nothing there. Uh, <laughs> we know exactly what this is. And, you know, they, and that's when, that's when some people started to trash him about, you know, what do you know, kid, you know, uh, these constellations are, you know, you're using modern constellations and the Mayans didn't even know about these and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, like you said, Chris, you got to give him credit for even having the idea, coming up with a hypothesis and testing it. It may have been wrong, but that's science. Yeah, he's not going to win a TED prize, but I mean, come on, at least he got like a blue ribbon in the science fair. Right? Well, and that does bring up, I mean, uh, uh, something to consider with these uh, newer types of technology are the dangers of what could be found on Google Earth and mm -hmm. looters are able to now use that type of information or even well-meaning people who say, oh, look, that looks neat. I want to go check it out and climb all over Pueblo and ruins and accidentally knock over walls or don't realize you can't take artifacts. Mm -hmm. There is that dangerous element. It's wonderful technology. And in all fairness, you want that technology for everybody to be able to use. But then there's that slightly problematic well not even slightly problematic aspect of it where then anybody could see some of these more sensitive archaeological sites that are in remote locations yeah that really can't protect i completely agree and uh, i think that making this information publicly available needs to be paired with 
intensified outreach from archaeologists so that access mm -hmm. to satellite imagery or access to LIDAR that could potentially give away locations of sites needs to be paired with uh, you know, just basic archaeological knowledge and basic knowledge of ethics and laws. You know, a lot of people don't realize uh, that they're looting sites when they when they actually do loot sites when they collect artifacts from the surface if they're hiking. Uh, they also don't realize that collecting material from uh, like state parks is illegal, no matter what it is. Just don't collect it, um, and that there's an impact to it. And so, you know, just like an intensification of public outreach and public education uh, can really do a lot to help. Uh, and there are examples of, of pretty successful programs. I uh, remember hearing an episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast that talked about some successful public archaeology programs. And I just heard a talk from uh, John Pauley, who's uh, the assistant state archaeologist for the state of Oregon, uh, gave a cool talk on how uh, a private landowner uh, just sent him an email one day randomly with a picture of either 12 or 14 obsidian bifaces that he had dug up in a, a cache in his yard and was like, hey, mm -hmm. uh, I found these weird rocks. Uh, are these of any interest to you? And it launched this hugely successful public archaeology campaign in Oregon that was, you know, ended up bringing a ton of, of, uh, students of varying ages from very young to high school and whatnot ended up bringing college students over to do their, you know, master's research on it and stuff like that. So, uh, I think that outreach and education is uh, probably just as important, if not more important than access to technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, like in a state like Ohio, I don't know about where you guys are right now, but you know, private property is private property and yeah. You don't have to notify the state or anyone. I think Indiana has stronger laws on excavating and you need permits to build structures on your property. But there's, like I was talking to the uh, archaeology chair at the Natural History Museum in town here, and he was saying that there's a lobbying group for collectors, like quote unquote, who like once there's a law that goes into the state house or like there's a potential bill, they just call up the representatives and get it shot down right away. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and kind of building off of that with Colin having grown up in Ohio as well. I remember my aunts and uncles, they would, it was a big thing on uh, rainy days. And when, um, so it was after good rain and fields had been plowed, you would go searching for projectile points. Yeah. And people just collect like crazy. And when I was at Worcester uh, with Dr. Cardulius, there was um, an outreach program. There was a society that was trying to recover historic cemeteries that were oh, then yeah. on private property. And there are state laws where then you cannot destroy the cemetery, but a lot of them had been. And farmers would knock over the stones and put them in a hole. And so one of the things we would do is we'd have long metal bars and we'd um, push them to the ground. And when you heard a ding, you'd then press it again in another spot, another ding. And that might be where one of the stones are. And we'd dig it up mm. and try to replace it back at the cemetery that had now been this, like the state said, yes, you can put a fence around this and the farmer can no longer plow in this one spot. Wow. I don't know, Colin, did you do any of that type of thing at Worcester? 
Um, no, I didn't get to do that. Um, there was a mammoth excavation Ooh. that like, just like, you know, some farmer was plowing this field and thankfully he, I think he called up Ashland university, which is close to Worcester. And it's led to this partial mammoth being, um, excavated and thankfully preserved too. But unfortunately, I didn't get to participate in that as I wasn't as interested in archaeology then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, all these methods and all these tools have a place. Like I had made a, a passing mention in the beginning. There's there's a right tool for every job. Uh, but I think that all of these things that we've shared with the public engagement and with all the different methods and tools that we use all of those have a value in the overall process of archaeology on a bigger picture. And so I'd also made a, a passing reference to, uh, you know, like theoretical methods and, um, you know, fieldwork methods and stuff like that. And so that all of those go into the, either the low tech or the high tech, or even the theoretical methods, all those go into working out, uh, research questions for mm -hmm. whatever the culture or, or focus of study is. And so that was something that when I, when I was first getting started, it took me a while to realize that on, on a, on a really big scale. And I've said this a few times and, and it's, it's a very general point, but archeology span is archeology span kind of no matter where you go. And so there's a lot of general research questions and methods that remain mostly the same, no matter where you are. And so those ones though, that are, that are fairly general are things like settlement and subsistence behavior. That's probably the biggest one that people look at no matter where they are on the planet. Uh, and that when you parse out all the little details of it, that's when it unfolds into more and more complex problems that are very specific to certain areas and cultures and, and times and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then another research question aside from settlement and subsistence behavior is social complexity. And so, you know, again, that unfolds into details, like how were resources used, who was using them, what were they being used for? And, you know, then you can look at that over time, like, um, uh, does it change over time and why does it change over time? And then, you know, for theoretical approaches, you can look at like human behavioral ecology. You can look at landscape archeology, span evolution. You can apply Marxism or queer theory, uh, all sorts of stuff, feminist theory. Mm -hmm. And, uh, all of them deal though with different scales of time and different scopes of focus, which means that the methods that you're using call for different data, which calls for different tools to gather that different data. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's when you look at it all in like a, a bigger picture like that and, and how it all relates together, it goes back to what we had talked about at the very beginning of the episode and how like one of the most important tools is the notebook. Uh, mm -hmm. And so all of this goes back into the process of gathering data, the process of testing a hypothetical deductive right. method um, and all that. So you're trying to test like, you know, what's going on here with, with all these people. And so, you know, that's kind of like why we use these tools. And so like, you know, specifically with shovels and screens uh, you know, you're, you're going to use that if you're testing for 
uh, like spatial distribution because you're doing a survey. You're trying to find uh, the locations of sites and how they're dispersed across a landscape. Uh, if you're using a trowel, you're not doing a large scale thing. That's a, that's a small scale tool. So you're going to be sampling mm -hmm. from a, a very specific location in a site. So mm -hmm. then you're, you're narrowing your, your net uh, you're, you're narrowing your focus onto a specific location to try and parse out what kind of activity was happening there. Like what kind of relationships mm -hmm. did people have with each other, whether that was on a small scale or a large scale and what kind of relationship did they have with the environment? Well, like, like you had said earlier, Chris, you know, sometimes even, uh, a can scatter from the 1940s out in the middle <laughs> of the desert can be interesting because why on earth would they stop there? You know, that's, that's right. the question. Like, why? Why were they there? And, and also, like, yeah. what did they deposit and why did they deposit that? Uh, so there's there's a lot of questions that go into something as simple as a collection of, you know, 30-odd cans and a couple glass bottles and maybe, you know, some ceramic plates and whatnot. Uh, you know, you can look at a lot of, like, socioeconomic behavior. You can look at consumption patterns, which comments into globalism, which comments into Marxism, so on and so forth. Um so I think it's really, really neat how, you know, on the, on the small scale, like on the individual level, as an archeologist, when you're doing the work out in the field, sometimes it's easy to lose, uh, to lose that perspective, you know, like after mm -hmm. you've dug a hundred shovel tests in one day, you're like, oh my God, why am I out here doing this? Uh, or, you know, like- My arms are gonna fall off, a yeah. monkey could do this. Why am I doing yeah, this? Yeah, after how many buckets that you've carried of soil, you know, you're like, why? Oh my God. And so, you know, like just try and remember that, that like on the bigger picture, like you're, uh, you know, get your head back into the scientific process of it, even though you're doing like menial, mind-numbing, manual <laughs> labor, uh, like Colin, you had mentioned uh, on the, what was it, the AIA website, you know, they say, mm -hmm. like, be prepared to do a lot of manual labor. It, oh, yeah. It's like, yes, <laughs> but also remember that there's a reason why you're doing it. And so, like, the reason why you're doing it is these general research questions. And once I was able to kind of figure out that, that really helped me kind of stay motivated and stick with it and kind of, like, <laughs> at least be interested enough in it to stick through, you know, mm -hmm. years and hours and, and whatnot of you know, the, the tedium of field work, you know, if you're doing a survey and whether you're using a shovel and a screen to do a shovel test survey, or if you're just doing a pedestrian survey and you're inspecting the surface, mm -hmm. you know, once you identify a site that has been previously unidentified, there are, there's, there's like two elements to recording a site that, you know, you're doing in your notes. And usually it's, it's the crew chief or the field director that, that fills out this part is, is the site form. But the two parts that I'm talking about are, you know, the one part is you fill out the material. And so you're describing the material, you're describing, you know, how much, what type, stuff like that. And then the other question is distance to water. And then I, I guess another part is you describe the terrain. And so with mm -hmm. those three variables, material, distance to water and terrain, you can tell so much by human behavior. You can tell yeah. why they chose to to do whatever behavior that was right there. And so, you know, maybe if it's a prehistoric site, uh, I'm using this example because it's what I have the most experience in, I guess, uh, is uh, if you identify a prehistoric site and you identify, you know, stone tools, 
and they're near a stone outcrop and they're sourced from that outcrop and it's near water and it's in like a favorable terrain, then you can start to look into the picture of like, okay, these people deliberately chose this spot. Like there's no mistake of why they're here. This wasn't just an accident that somebody just like stumbled over a rock and dropped their tool. (laughs) You know, there's a clear reason why they did this. And also since it's near a source of stone, you can also start to look at questions like over time, like I had mentioned. And so like, uh, I think it's either Schiffer or Hodder, or probably both Binford, everybody really, they talk about the palimpsest of, of archeology, span like the palimpsest of a site. And so like repeated behavior over time, you know, even if it's just like one kind of low impact activity, but if you repeat that low impact activity thousands of times over thousands of years, you end up with a massive site. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, those are the kinds of things that we're looking for. And so it's it's like you start to look at things on different scales and different scopes and you start to see, you know, how much of an impact like the landscape and relationships to landscape can have on human behavior mm-hmm. and decision making and stuff like that. And so it's kind of neat to, you know, once you start to get into the main research questions, you start to think about decision making and like why people are doing the things that they're doing. And, you know, maybe it's because of, uh, political pressures or, you know, Colin, you had used the example of, um, two religious figures at a Roman site, you know, mm-hmm. how much, uh, the influence of just these two individuals can have over, uh, over the activities that happen at a site. It can be incredible, you know, and there's, mm-hmm. It really is. And if we're going with the theme of tools, then it's the tool of knowing what to look for. Because if you're new to archaeology and going out to the site for the first time, even if the directors say, hey, you know, this is the type of pottery you need to look for, you'll find glass, you'll find metal objects, hell, maybe you'll even find a coin. Um, That still takes a long time to actively discern, like, what what to look for. and even harder within the context um, of like, oh no, did I hit a new level or not? Um, and so, you know, if you use the example of the two saints um, that were in Romania, they, you know, it's you're what are you looking for? You're looking for like elements that could be tied to Christianity, to ancient Roman religion, to basilican architecture, to Um, like one of the things that was really unique in the literature I read was that when they made the basilica for these guys, they actively removed all of the previous Roman structures to make way for, um, for this, for these, for the saints. And so knowing what to look for may be the hardest tool of all, but that takes years of practice. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially if you're getting into more diagnostic things. So in grad school, we studied a lot about specific types of pottery, specifically Puebloan, Sinawan, Hohokam, and that area. And when I worked for the Forest Service in that area, I got really good at being able to be like, that's that pottery from that time period. <laughs> Left for a year, you know, come back to it. I'm like, oh, God, I have no idea. I can't remember. <laughs> and so it is so incredibly easy to lose that knowledge. So, yeah, you may... 
you learn how to identify in the field. You know which is the Roman coin. You know which is the type of pottery at, at the temple complex, etc. But you leave and then come back and you go, oh, God, where did all that knowledge go? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. It's good to stay fresh and, and just kind of okay. keep things in your mind and, you know, like refresh yourself as often as you can. You know, mm -hmm. don't it's always good to, to just like review the basics like all the time. Just stay really you know, finely tuned on that stuff. Cause I, I have had totally similar experiences, Emily. Like I took a three year hiatus on going to Central America and working on Maya sites. And in those three years, I forgot all sorts of stuff about, you know, like the, the type morphology of, of the ceramic sequences there. And, uh, you know, at one, I, I, I was never really that great at it to start with, but you know, what little bit I did know before was quickly lost. And, uh, so I've, I've been kind of relearning ever since. And, mm -hmm. uh, I think that knowing what to look for is, is a great tool. And that's, that's such an awesome point to, to make. But, uh, I think also like, um, the way you know what to look for is by learning from others and by, by doing research and stuff. And so, you know, ask people who know more than you, and there's always someone who knows more than you, whether, you know, that's your supervisor or if you're a supervisor and you happen to have a, a student or, uh, if you're in CRM, you, you know, oftentimes you'll work with someone who just has more experience than you with something. And so always be willing to learn from, from anybody really, and mm -hmm. see the museums because those have, you know, whatever the local museum is, they usually have a great assemblage of, you know, whatever you should expect to see locally. True. Right. And one uh, quick field tip too, if you're working in a new area and you're not too familiar with the, either the pottery or the projectile point styles, et cetera, um, I would take pictures of whatever we found and then type them back at the hotel. Yeah. So that I'd get into a mindset of, okay, all right, this is what we're looking for. This is the type of material they have. So I'm not, like when I was in North Dakota, I'm not too familiar with um, Knife River Flint. So now I know what to look for. This is how it naps. This is what a tool looks like. So that when I find one again, I can go, oh, that's mm. what that is. Well, are there any uh, kind of closing thoughts or any more questions or suggestions for um you know, tools and, and ways to go about archaeology before we wrap up the episode? Um, I think I'd like to ask, you know, you um, what else, wait, what other courses are you guys aware of that can give you access online or in books to more information about technology or, you know, maybe like a basic guide to GIS or LIDAR just anything like that. That way, you know, if someone's on the go, they can look it up and they don't have to endlessly wander the internet saying, oh God, I think I remember listening to a podcast once, but. <laughs> I would say another thing I might suggest is uh, looking into webinars. And so yeah. sometimes the Society for Arche American Archaeology offers some, um, sometimes ACRA, uh, Chris, remind me what the what that stands for. American Cultural Amer Resources Association. That's right. Okay, I always forget. Uh, so many acronyms <laughs> in archaeology. Acronyms. <laughs> Wait, <what>? but, um... <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, but uh, sometimes ACRA has webinars as well. But ACRAs are typically more focused on the the CRM aspect of things. 
But uh, also the Center for Digital Archaeology or, or CODA, they have a website. It's just called digitaltraining.site. They have recurring webinars. And so that's, I think, the advantage that CODA, uh, the Center for Digital Archaeology, has over the SAA webinars is that SAA tends to offer one webinar and it's not a recurring thing and there's really not much of a follow-up and so it's like either you catch it or that's your one shot and you you didn't but um you know coda has recurring uh webinars on things like photogrammetry uh using drones in archaeology uh doing uh like data workshops like managing your data um Mm -hmm. and then we're we're working on some for uh gis uh, on that. And so, um, there's also, there was just one on small project management that Bill White ran, and I believe he'll end up doing another one. Uh, but that was super useful for both academic and CRM, you know, just learning how to work efficiently with your time and kind of like maximizing your efforts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely check those out. Yeah. Any other uh, closing thoughts? Oh, just to jump on the suggestion train. Um, the Society for American Archaeology also has a state education coordinators list. And so if you're looking for state specific information, but uh, the you can email the specific coordinator. So I'm the uh, state education coordinator for the SAAs of Colorado. And so anybody can email me if they're looking for information about archaeology, Colorado specific, or just archaeology in general. And so every state has one or more. Some of the states have two. And we can provide information. We can provide videos. We will point you in the right direction. So if you don't know where to go, we can at least give you a jumping uh, jumping start. Where to start? Well, I guess we'll wrap this one up. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for your email. Thanks for reaching out. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy we got a chance to bring you onto the show and follow up on the excellent suggestions that you had for, uh, topics to talk about in archeology span and, you know, always feel free to reach out. I'd love to have you back on the show and, uh, you know, good luck with your, your post back and, uh, Chris and Emily, thanks for joining. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.